Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Pete Davis. Pete wears many hats. I first came across his work as the host of the podcast for The Current Affairs magazine, and we met at a live taping of a show in D.C. But I also came across Pete through the commencement speech he gave at Harvard last year, in which he implores the audience to ignore the siren song of keeping your options open and instead commit your life to a worthy cause. This speech's topic and metaphor, infinitely browsing Netflix, struck a chord with our generation, and a version of the speech shared by Goldcast racked up 27 million views on Facebook. In no small irony, the mentions of Catholic radical Dorothy Day and unheard prisoners were left out of the success bro Goldcast version. Calls for actually committing to social justice are less popular than calls to commit to something. While at Harvard Law, Pete wrote a book called Our Bicentennial Crisis. He calls for reform to the school's culture and policies, with the goal of getting the majority of Harvard Law students pursuing public interest law. If you're at all interested in how the legal profession fails to meet the needs of the overwhelming majority of the country, Our Bicentennial Crisis is an excellent summary of the problem, in addition to being a source of good ideas for solutions. Pete is now one of the founders of The Democratic Alternative, a national infrastructure to develop and promote policies that deepen democracy. That's democratic with a small d. In this episode, we cover these many projects. We also talk about whether you can be a leftist and an entrepreneur, institutionalists and insurrectionaries, how Chapo Trap House radicalized me, escaping the David Brooks gaze, that's G-A-Z-E, communicating the ideas of the left in many political languages, building up expertise to get the confidence to challenge those in power, how to get more out of reading the news, the importance of making political movements welcoming, and using concrete policies to bring people into the left. One small note is that there was some latency between our video chat, so there are some longer than usual pauses between responses. Either that, or Pete is a particularly thoughtful interviewee. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. Pete, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Garrison. Glad to be on here. So Pete, you showed up in my life in quite a few different ways, um, and it's kind of been a long time coming on my end for this conversation to happen. Uh, the first was the Current Affairs podcast, which I love. It's my favorite magazine um, and one of my favorite podcasts on the internet. Um, I also realized that Getaway, the the tiny house you know, vacation project um, that you started is you. And I'd seen like ads on Instagram for that and knew people who had, who had done it. And then your yes, we exist both in the woods and on ads on Instagram. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then your Harvard commencement speech that went viral also showed up on one of my news feeds. Um, and I was like, "Wow! Like Pete's got a lot of projects going on. Can you just like give a little bit of a summary of like what you spend your time doing?" Yeah. So I I've always been a project person. Uh, it mostly came out of the fact that I didn't like. Uh, doing classes and getting grades in school. Um, so I mostly spent my time since, you know, elementary school doing projects. I When I was, um, uh, like, in elementary school, I used to just, like, writing plays and stuff um, instead of, like, doing class. And then in high school, I, I was, like, a – I was really into the, like, high school variety show, and I liked hosting that. And so I've always been into hosting things. Um, and so that's what I uh, – I'm now hosting this podcast for Current Affairs. We also do live shows. So it was a little bit of a taste of my high school dream of being a host. Um, I'm also in more uh, uh, kind of 
substantial work outside of hosting is I love uh, civic projects and I care deeply about uh, deepening American solidarity and democracy. So uh, I care about the advancing the project of the left, which is advancing deepening democracy, more power to more people in more ways. I do that. I try to do that through um, helping out with local democratic campaigns. I try to do that through current affairs and trying to spread more of these ideas. And uh, I, in the long run, I'm interested in doing that with uh, this project I'm organizing called uh, the Democratic Alternative, which has this goal of raising up uh, democratic ideas and leaders, small d democratic. Um, and that's on the democracy side. On the solidarity side, I care a lot about uh, deepening solidarity, the the bonds that connect neighbors um, and uh, in more ways. So I used to do this project called Commonplace that was a web platform for local communities. And in the long run, I'm hoping to uh, revive that. And temporarily, I'm working with my um, sister on trying to uh, do a documentary on one of the sages of American solidarity, Robert Putnam, who's the author of Bowling Alone, uh, which is uh, a kind of groundbreaking book on the ties that bind us together as Americans and how they are in danger and what we can do to revive them. So just a smattering of random civic projects. That's, that's cool. And I hope to touch on a lot of what you just mentioned. Um, but first, I want to talk about what might be like maybe the most controversial thing you do as a leftist, which is you started a business. Um, can you talk a little bit about Getaway? Yeah, so uh, Getaway, my my buddy, my college buddy and I started it. We were really into tiny houses. And we actually, it's, it's, it's a true story of we started the business that we wanted to use. Um, we, uh, we both were at a period in our life where we wanted to um, get away from the world. We wanted cabins in the woods. Um, and instead of doing what sane people uh, do, which is just like try to get your own cabin in the woods, we stupidly, as both project people, uh, started a business about getting away to cabins in the woods. So uh, the idea of Getaway is we build these tiny houses, we put them in the woods, and we rent them out by the night, um, hoping to get away. We started with one house outside of Boston, it became two, and then three, and then a whole site outside of Boston of tiny houses. And then we went to New York, then we went to my beloved home uh, region of D.C., and now we're heading to Atlanta and LA too. So it's been a it's been a wild ride. I've learned uh, way too much about tiny houses, acquiring rural land, um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, interior design. All these. It, one of the fun things about doing a startup is that it's an anecdote generator <laughs> and a learning generator because you're just forced to uh, figure everything out. And so it's a fun way to. A learn about a world and, and get away by being kind of embodied in the real world, unlike many tech companies, um, results in uh, learning a lot of interesting things. I now know what uh, like uh, different types of pine wood are, <laughs> um, which I never thought I would. Um, and so, uh, but uh, a, a lot of most of getaway has been done by my partner, uh, John Staff, who's, uh, who's the CEO and has kept going with it um, and uh, has been... Uh, is the is the real real muscle that's really cool um and i i think like i went through a period of time where i thought social enterprise was like intriguing um there's this idea that's like separate from like nonprofits um or government in that like a business can sustain itself without having to ask people for money or get funding um and i've become a little bit more skeptical of that just 
you know, I think that as businesses get big enough, like they ultimately succumb to the profit motive and and lose lose their way. Um, do you see like any contradiction in being like a leftist and and also an entrepreneur? So i i have a I have a few thoughts on this. So the first is that I, when I say that I believe in deep democracy, I don't mean. So this this is going to connect. It sounds like I'm I'm changing the <laughs> subject, but it's connected back to this. Um, when I say I believe in deep democracy, I believe um, I don't mean shallow democracy. I don't mean like elections and like basic individual rights. I mean the deep idea that a society could be more or less organized, more democratic or less democratic, based on the uh, quality of the society being um, can someone realize their dreams realize their ideas in society. Mm -hmm. And so that involves, you know, strengthening people in communities. It also involves opening up our government to more people in more ways. And also it involves opening up our economy to more people in more ways. So part of um, kind of a deep democracy is to have people be able to realize their ideas in the economy. And so I think that it's important for people on the left uh, to be able to believe in, uh, in, in to have an account for how people can produce things in the economy, and so I I want to challenge two kind of uh, uh, ideological camps about um, about this. So the right wing one is that the way to realize your dreams must be in this single solitary form called the corporate form and everything else we should be skeptical of. So this is, an, like, and that's kind of their idea of freedom in the economy. Like there is this corporate form, you get investors, you have profit maximization. That's how you should live out your dreams. It's Shark Tank. Um, and like, that's the only way to have things done. And then there's this kind of left-wing ideological cant about, you know, we should be skeptical of anything in the economy. And this has resulted in, you know, lefties not having a theory of production. Mm. Um, usually it's like, oh, right-wingers can make things and then we'll appropriate it. <laughs> um, but I think that we need a broad pluralistic um, uh, set of institutional forms in the economy. So we should maybe have the corporate form, but we should also have worker cooperatives. We should also have land trusts. We should also have community trusts. We should also have commons. We should also have local governments own things, state governments own things, federal government own things. We should have the federal government structuring some markets that private actors can partner in. We should have nonprofits. We should have nonprofits that try to, um, you know, look that look like a business, you know, different types of things. And we need a like a menagerie of institutional forms within the economy. And I think that's what the left wing project should be. So one part of the left wing project of in the economy is, you know, increase the amount mm -hmm. of forms. So get worker cooperatives in the economy, get community land trusts, get more state ownership in the economy, get more um market making. But then we also have to not just say, like, be happy that there's more forms. We also have to make sure that there's forms within the economy that stand up for certain interests, rights outside of the original entrepreneur. So um, that's mm -hmm. what labor unions are. They help ensure that the fruits of production don't just go to the entrepreneur or the capitalists that funded it. Um, they could also go to the workers. And, you know, part of the 
job of social democracy is to make sure that the fruits of the whole economy go towards building up the economic security infrastructure so that the thing keeps on worrying and people aren't um, kind of uh, accruing too much money in one corner and other people are left to kind of insecurity, precarity, and destitution. So that was a long-winded thing. I'm sure there's questions that come out of that or, or yeah, thoughts Yeah, no, or it's, it's super interesting. I think like I have a little bit of ideological whiplash in my own life where, you know, I was always like on the left side of things, but um, I don't know. I don't think I would ever have identified as a neoliberal, but people would have called me that, <laughs> I think, at the time in college. Um, but I always cared about justice, but I was like a defender of, you know, like markets um, broadly. And I think like I've become a lot more skeptical of the ability of markets to like meet the needs of actual people, at least the way they're structured now. Um, but I also, when people on the left are like very dismissive of entrepreneurs as like a, adding any value or like kind of like, oh, you know, all Jeff Bezos did was like send things through the mail. Like that seems a little reductive and misses out on like some some value that's being created that we have to weigh against, you know, exploitation of workers um, and the destruction of smaller businesses and the increased, you know, control of our government by corporations. Um, but like, I guess I don't want to see us throw the baby out with the bathwater and building institutions that can make people's lives better and be productive um, and help people, you know, make money and save and do all the normal things that are required to, you know, live in, in today's society. Um, guess leading by example um if i were to start a business now I'd, I'd like to think that you know doing it with democracy in the workplace like meaningful ownership by everybody um is is something that you can say like look like we can actually compete and provide a good life for everybody who works here and meaningful participation so like, are there any s steps towards that at getaway or are like it seems like you're not quite as involved in that as your other projects yeah, I'm. I'm not as. I'm not as involved now. I'm not in charge. We were structured as a um, as the corporate model where we got investment and thus like, and it was structured with, um, you know, in a in a way that, uh, you know, took us out of the full driver's seat mm. as most firms are. And that's one story about firms is that the entrepreneurs are not even under capitalism. The entrepreneurs are not even in yeah. charge of their full. Um, thing and I'm not as involved in it. I think in the future I would start a company that I, I think if I was ever to start a firm in the future, I think I would. Pr I'm probably reached the point in my life where I, I want any future firm I start to be a worker cooperative um, or some other yeah. form of that. Um, uh, and you know what we do at Getaway and part of what built into the DNA within the corporate form that it currently is, is we just try to live up to kind of best best practices, which is kind of corporate high road, which is, I think, the the minimum standard we should hold all, all companies to, like pay your workers $15 an hour, make sure people have health benefits, don't put people into precarity, things like that. But I, I um, ideologically kind of in the future, I, I want to make sure my, my things are yeah. work cooperatives. Um, the, uh, I, I think you made a really wonderful point with about kind of the left should not lose entrepreneurship. And I think the reason we lost entrepreneurship is because the right forced all accounts of production to be locked into this single mm -hmm. form. So they became obsessed with shareholder mm -hmm. maximization in the single corporate form, kind of heavily uh, controlled by capital. 
disembedded from local communities, um, disembedded from values. You know, it's like the high 80s um, form, which I think still kind of holds the day at business schools, even though it's starting to turn. Um, And when all of production became associated with that form and we lost our memory of alternative forms of this, um, we start thinking all of production and all of entrepreneurship is something we mm-hmm. should wash our hands of. Um, and I think this is very dangerous because the left should not become disembedded from society. We should become more embedded yeah. in society. So the goal is to have lefties in every institution, not to have a subculture of activists that are disembedded from all institutions. And so the as Karl Marx reminds us, the most one of the most important institutions is how things are made, yeah. the means of production. And so, you know, I I think it's important that lefties should go to business school, lefties should go to, you know, work in the government, lefties should go like run towards the problem. Um, and so, yeah, my hope is that we can displace corporate capitalism, not just uh, not not only fight it in addition to fighting it, we should displace it by building these alternate forms. So we need to build worker cooperatives. We need to help them out through law. We need to build a worker cooperative business school to help structure that. We need to build worker cooperative ecosystems. And we need a, you know, all the worker cooperatives are like the most popular alternative form, but there's just all these different ways to um, kind of unbundle the profit maximizing uh, single shareholder driven, um, uh, form, uh, to allow other interests to happen. And so, um, I think the left, uh, should open up its imagination on this. There's a lot of interesting yeah, things. That's, that's super do. interesting. I, I think, um, I've, I found it to be like, there's this kind of trope on the internet that like leftists are all about purity and like are unwelcoming to people from certain backgrounds. And I've felt this going to like DSA meetings, um, especially when I used to work in management consulting and feeling like uncomfortable with, you know, where I work. And one of my friends works at, you know, the big bad Goldman Sachs. And uh, he has a lot of student debt um, and is a first generation college student. But at these meetings, like he feels a little bit weird about it. But like, at least in the interactions, nobody's ever like, oh, like gross or like, or they might be like, yeah, I get it. Like you got bills to pay. Um, And so I think like that, that trope is like not entirely true, at least not borne out by my experience with people in real life. And obviously people are usually nicer to each other um, in real life than they are on Twitter. Um, But there's definitely something of a hostility towards like people who are entrepreneurs kind of by default. Um, And I think like, and just people who are associated with institutions. And I think like the right in contrast is kind of like, Hey, if you're willing to sign up for this project, we'll take you no matter who you are, which has its own problems. But I think like being kind of open arms to people who, have like been kind of awoken in the last few years, um, which is a lot of people will, you know, make the project stronger. It'll mean there are more people who have a different perspective who, you know, know what the inside of a tech company or the inside even of like some institutions that the left is like pretty opposed to like, uh, you know, police. I, I know a police officer who is a leftist himself and he grew up in a conservative society, joined the military and then became a police officer and like then kind of got exposed to like, left-leaning thought and effective altruism and you know i was primed to be kind of like edgy around this person but um, he told very real stories of how he was making a change within his department but also like he now knows things that most leftists will never know because they don't ever like get that kind of experience 
Yeah, I'm totally with you on this. I a, a few thoughts on this. One is um uh I think that there is a role to play for a balance between kind of institutionalists and insurrectionaries um at using kind of Chris yeah. Hayes divide uh from his great book uh Twilight of Twilight the Elites. Of the elite, um, think, yeah. And yes. Twilight of the Elites. It yeah, it's me. one of the best. Uh it's just great. It's in my it's in my it's in my like <laughs> pillars of of understanding the world. Um Chris Hayes being a great example of someone who was kind of incubated as an insurrectionary who became an institutionalist. Um uh what's great about insurrectionaries um, and what's great about kind of uh, what's liberatory about kind of being around people who don't feel accountable to the institution is you can remember mm -hmm. your morals. You know, you can remember uh, what matters. And it's really hard to remember those things when you're Absolutely. paid to not remember them um, or you're paid either in money or in social currency to not remember them. Like one of the problems with the Democratic Party right now is we just like had way we had just like 30 years of institutionalists running the show and like they lived under right wing ascendancy. And so if they wanted to get anything done in their day jobs, they had to be complicit to the right and they had to hang out with the right and they had to like make compromises with the right. And so you start having historical amnesia about like what we stand for in the first place because we're spending too much time like getting institutional reform done kind of on the margins. Um, so insurrectionaries are good. Like everyone, I think a lot of lefties, you know, I'm a hunky dory <laughs> Mr. Rogers person. So I don't like my style is not Chapo. <laughs> Um, and like, I think we could go and find examples of where like Chapo is not participating in the like, um, greatest, uh, you know, highest forms of kind of human <laughs> potential. Like they don't have the grace of say, you know, Elizabeth Brunig, who always makes sure to like, not have, you know, to always kind of be open hearted as she talks, even if she vehemently <laughs> disagrees with someone. Um, but I think a lot of lefties will appreciate that like Chapo, listening to Chapo, um, at least the certain type of lefty that like gets a kick out of them. Um, listening to Chapo was liberatory. And it was like, hey, you're right. Mitt Romney is not yeah. a good person. <laughs> wow, you know, what a crazy you're idea. Right. You know, no matter how many things, no matter how many op-eds he writes saying like he's a centrist, he's not a centrist. He's a reactionary. It doesn't matter that he's dressed mm -hmm. up better than Donald Trump. Like he's done a lot of harm, you know, and like it's really good to kind of have those times where you go back to the like hangout room and you're reminded that like this yeah, is outrageous, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I'm really glad that there's incubation there. But you got to balance that with, you know, incubate. You have to be incubated and then you yeah. have to go be born. You know, you have to reenter the world. You have to ha you have to get messy. And like the goal is not to die pure. The goal is to die, you know having moved the world in a direction. And um, that involves embedding yourself in an institution and embedding yourself in an institution. You can't just be a public suggester. You have to start participating in the institution. You have to follow some of the norms of the institution. You have to maybe listen to the institution and learn that like what you thought was the case in the break room um, wasn't the case. But so I think a good way to design a life, like not to give a recommendation, but a good way to design a life is to have parts of your life where you're being kind of incubated in a moral community and parts of your life where you're being embedded in institutions and have this back and forth between the two um, so that you're not uh, fully, fully um, so that you're getting things done and changing the world, but you're also not fully kind of captured by it. This is what, you know, there's a Catholic phrase about this. You have to be in the mm. world, but not of it. The stuff that makes you in the world is being part of the institution, but you can't have it capture you yeah. and be of it.
you know? Um, and so you have to return kind of the, the Christian call would be, you know, return to prayer and, you know, solemn reflection or something, but maybe the lefty call would be like return to Chapo and, you know, the Chapos of the world or the, your lefty friends talking about how everything, you know, is awful or reminding you that, you know, despite the fact you're trying to reform the military, it Mm -hmm. is really awful. You know, it's, it's really awful that, you know, there are that, that innocent civilians are killed and like, that's something you can't lose your anger over. Um, uh, that's, yeah. you've got to have that back and forth. And so yeah. that's what I'd say. Yeah, no, no, it's great. The uh, there's always a lot to react to. Um, so yeah, I mean, Chapo Trap House for listeners who don't know is a very irreverent left-wing political comedy podcast. And it was actually like how I kind of radicalized. Um, I started listening after the election. I mean, I guess some context, like the election kind of broke me. Um, I had like a, I was a pretty favorable disposition towards Obama. Um, I like had my criticisms of him, but I was like, oh, you know, he's like, he's doing the best he can. Um, and I read like very mainstream sources. I didn't really know what Jacobin was. Um, current affairs existed. But, like I definitely wasn't aware of it. Um, and then I listened to Chapo and I like re-litigated the 2016 primary uh, between Bernie and Hillary. And I was like, well, like this is totally different from things I had heard. And the like left-wing community I've been exposed to up until that point had been, you know, like labor activists at Cornell. And I, I joined some of those protests and I started a group devoted to prison reform, but I always had like a more reformist kind of mindset and had not really been exposed to contemporary left-wing thought in America in a way that was like palatable to me. And, you know, I definitely could have sought it out more. Um, but I also saw a lot of it as like unrealistic and like not feasible. But getting exposed to those ideas after kind of my whole worldview had been shattered, um, I don't know, the time was ripe. And then current affairs really kind of solidified things for me in providing like this intellectual framework, um, like a lot more empirically driven, um, but like fleshing out those ideas that I've been exposed to. And it's it's kind of funny because like Chapo is not necessarily trying to be the most persuasive to somebody who's on the fence, but it also like radicalized me in a way that I don't think anything else really had up until that point. Um, and it is kind of like it's comfort food, you know, when I'm stressed out or had a bad day and it's just like there and like, you know, it's like, all right, you're preaching to the choir, but it also has changed a lot of people's perspective on politics. I think. In a, in a lot of um, uh, kind of liberation movements and I, and I'm, I'm just treading very lightly in this comparison because kind of like the experience of being a, like a suburban white dude being kind of liberated by listening to Chapo or something is very different than the other liberation <laughs> movements. But um, in I'm just using it for the yeah. schema. Um, the schema being that in a lot of liberation movements, people feel a gaze of a certain type of person in every action that they do. So they, they think, Oh, how will this be read by X? So in the like much more important liberation movements, like black power was about pushing out the white gaze mm-hmm. and what you do, you know, it's not a G A Z E. Um, and, um, the the famous one is in the feminist movement, mm-hmm. the male gaze. It's like every, the idea of these circles, kind of incubation insurrectionary circles were um, to tell you, you can do things for you and you can do things for your fellow women. You don't have to do things for, um, for ma- men all the time, you know, like in, you don't have to always fear the judgment of the eyes of men and in a much smaller, less significant way, 
what I think the left is going through right now, and I think it's going to kind of uh, incept into the whole Democratic Party, is we've spent the last 25 years like trying to please a like cent- center right kind mm-hmm. of man. My dad. <laughs> um, in every political yeah, action yeah. that we do because they're the loudest guys mm-hmm. with the op-ed pages and they're the guys that are at the country club saying, oh, I don't like what you're saying here. Yeah. That sounds like socialists. And, um, and, you know, Obama is an example of someone who we, you know, a lot of people like, we like him, but he was very captured by the kind of center right mm-hmm. David Brooks gaze. You know, um, Chuck Schumer said every time he passes anything, he thinks of a Reagan Democrat man in oh, like man. Long Island or something. <laughs> that explains a lot, and, actually. <laughs> um, and, and so what you need to push that out is you need something that's a little sharp and a little edgy. Like someone who's hunky-dory like me can't do that. You need someone who has a little more edge to them to say, you know, like – F that. We don't need to do it for them anymore. We can do it for what we believe. We can do something for our own sake. We can argue for prison reform, not because it'll save money. We can argue for prison reform because it's disgusting yeah. that we cage people. You know, we can argue for global warming, not because we can argue for immigrant rights, not because they're also going to create, you know, they're doing yeah. jobs we don't have to, which is like so speaking to this. And we can argue for it and say we're interconnected as a community. This is ridiculous that that we get the kind of fruits of this country and we're going to have terror at our border to prevent other people who want those fruits too. And so, um, and who knows, you know, and it's also kind of pushing out the predictive gaze too, not even just the moral gaze. It's like, who knows if it'll work? Maybe it'll work. I'm not going to trust yeah. you pundit anymore. Um, and and I think that's part of what's Absolutely. going on here. Um, I mean, so one thing that I've really admired in your ability, Pete, is that you can speak to many different audiences in ways that I think they would find persuasive. Um, and so in preparing for this, I read your book, um, Our Bicentennial Crisis, which is like this long critique of Harvard Law School and its failure to provide, you know, the legal services that regular people need. Um, and I was just amazed because it's like, in some sense, it's scathing. It's just really um, evidence driven, but like showing that Harvard Law is sending the vast majority of its class to corporate interest firms each year, even though people don't go in intending to do that work. So it's not just that like these are people who would have done it any, anyway. Like Harvard Law seems to be playing a causal role in sending people to, towards jobs that are of like dubious social value. But it's framed in a way that like, oh, Harvard Law doesn't want to become irrelevant. And like, here's these Harvard professors and these theories that like were developed here being applied to this institution. And like, here are these very specific reforms that like really don't seem that radical, but seem like they actually would work. Um, and I, I see that. And then like, I also listen to some of your speeches, riling people up or see you doing the current affairs podcast. And it's like, you seem to really have a deep empathy for the people that um, you're speaking to and trying to reach. And I, I want to ask like more about the, the book you wrote, but also like, were you always this way? Or was there a time where was young Pete Davis really fiery and like getting in fights with everybody and like people are like, Oh, that guy is such a blowhard. Uh. Yeah, no, it, it comes from a flaw in my personality, which is that I, I want to get along <laughs> with people. The worst. And, um, <laughs> and so, um, and then I also kind of have this uh, desire to have, you know, to, I have these moral beliefs mm-hmm. that I want to fight for. And so I feel intention between 
I have these moral beliefs that I want to fight for and I want to get along with everyone. So I, um, I try to fight for those beliefs as strongly as I can in ways that allow me to keep getting along with people. And, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, I could frame that in, in two ways, you know, I could say um, the kind of pro me way to say it is, you know, I, I do think it's effective. I do think kind of empathy based non nonviolent in the deepest sense of the term, not just not hitting people, but not like violating mm. things they hold sacred um, strategizing over kind of desiring your message to land, to truly organize people and change their mind, like with the true desire to change your mind, not to like beat your chest and virtue signal. Um, and, uh, does have an effect. So that's like the pro me way. Um, the, the kind of anti me is maybe like, I need to like overcome that fear of riling people up and, and, uh, and, and like fight harder because, you know, people who fight hard, uh, get respect, you know, and like I, one of my heroes is Ralph Nader and, um, in some ways he speaks in kind of, in terms of American values, he speaks in a very concrete way that appeals to people, but somehow, you know, in his heyday, he earned a lot of respect while also just kind of <laughs> yelling at everyone and, and like prosecuting a case at all times. Same goes with like people yeah. like Bernie. So, um, so I think the jury's out. Um, uh, if I had to be myself and do kind of a hunky dory way to say everything's okay, I would say some people are really good at like scathing takedowns and we need them. And some people are kind of good at reaching out and, and activating uh, an idea in someone else's values and we need them. I, I, I've had a lot of benefit. I've learned the kind of art of it by kind of just having friends that are um, truly building relationships of people that have different value systems than me. And thus I, 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 I think I do kind of know a bit about different right-wing value systems in a deeper way than maybe the average uh, lefty, just from kind of having kind of being curious about them and getting a kick out of them. My dad was a, um, my dad was an anthropologist. And so I, I just, whenever I'm kind of, getting too angry about, you know, someone being totally different than me and like totally seeing the world differently. And that kind of like political tribal impulse, I try to click <laughs> into anthro mode and be like, oh, this is interesting. What is driving someone to like feel yeah. this so strongly? So, um, and I've been transformed by that. So like, I think that would be condescending to the person if I was just using yeah. it and just like observing them. Um, but by kind of clicking into that mode, I've, I've been changed. Like I've, I was, I had a lot of friends who were Mormon in college and I've been like deeply moved um, and kind of transformed towards being more communitarian um, and more uh, religious because of them. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot, a lot to touch on there. Um, so I guess like with our bicentennial crisis, what was the response to that? Has that been you know, making an impact at Harvard? Yeah. So when I got to Harvard, there was almost no... Uh, talk of this like we had there there was a fight in the 90s i yeah. talk about it in our bicentennial crisis but um and in my talks around it that got like a that kind of established this divide of like there is a thing mm -hmm. called public interest <laughs> like 
uh, Ralph Nader. So the idea is, I, I kind of coined this term corporate interest law, but it used to be called big law or firm jobs. And then there was like public interest. And Ralph Nader kind of revived the idea of public interest law in the 60s and 70s. And then in the 90s, they institutionalized it at the major law schools to have like office of public interest because it used to be like only five mm -hmm. people would go to it. So it wasn't even worth talking about. Now there's like 20% that go into public interest. And that, that kind of divide was... Um, when I got there, the divide was there, but it was very fuzzed by everyone. You know, the administrators would say, like, there's no real difference. And like, we're just trying to help people figure out what's going on. And you might weave in and out of the two. And like, there's like people have different choices and, you know, in your life and you got to see what's a good fit for you. And, you know, if someone raised something like, hey, this is really different, you know, one, like, there is a real different reality mm -hmm. to these two things. <laughs> um, they would be like, no, 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 don't say that. Um, and so what my hope was with the book, and I think this did happen and the book helped with this a bit, um, was yeah. sharpen the divide. Because the first thing you have to do in any campaign is you have to say that there really is an alternative and that it really matters. And so the I don't think when I left or even a year out from what I'm hearing, it's not like the institutions about to reform and like the the kind of protest movement is ready to go and do it but i do think that it's much more safe especially after the trump election too which which um helped reify it further that that i don't think the smarm uh, that was uh, fuzzing over the entire divide is there anymore. I, I wanted to meticulously get rid of that so that we could begin to have a serious conversation about what was going on. And I think, I think it, it it's happening. Like the students there this year after I've gone, they, many of them have read it and they kind of use the term corporate interest and there's um, and I think some of professors have written to me and said they're more emboldened and kind of thinking about this divide. And so hopefully it moved it in a, in a, in a way. And That's great. It doesn't uh, yeah. I mean, in, in that book and also in a speech you gave on the raising the minimum wage for Walmart people, you kind of meticulously go through these counter arguments and look at the data and look at the evidence. And it's usually like, wow, these are like really thin. And if you look at the numbers, like saying, oh, people do pro bono work at corporate interest law firms or they join like public interest uh, law down the line. And it's like actually corporate or pro bono work is almost nothing. And very few people make the switch. If anything, more people go into the corporate interest law as their careers advance. And I think it's just really important that we don't take these ideas as like self-evident, um, that there are people who are going to make convincing sounding arguments on the other side, um, especially if there's capital uh, at play. And, you know, these institutions have a, do a pretty good job of like defending themselves and, and justifying themselves and creating a culture where it's like impolite to question the core core precepts uh, that undergird them. And I just really appreciated reading that. And like, I didn't know a ton about, um, I knew a little bit about this divide through a friend of mine who was at Harvard law and wrote a piece after the election in the Harvard law record, echoing things you, you discuss in, in the book of like, what role did Harvard Law play in this, in the shattering of people's faith in institutions that led to Trump, um, where like 70% of people go into corporate interest law? Uh, so the seeds were there, but it was just such a comprehensive and persuasive look at the, the field. I, re I really appreciate that. And one lesson I got that can be applied to any field that I just highly recommend to everyone, but not many people do, is... One of the reasons, I think that there is an underlying uncertainty 
undergirding all of our political beliefs because we are relying mm. on trust, trusted mm -hmm. experts to um, and like networks of trust to fight for what we believe. So we, you know, I trust like the writers at The Intercept that tell me that like Obama's yeah. drone war was bad, but I don't know the details. And so if I'm in a fight online or in a fight in person about it, I just like will cite one or two things that they've told me about. And then I know that if I was like truly interrogated, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't really know. And I think that's undergirding everyone. And I think it actually stops people from really pushing at anything because you're we're all scared that someone's going to double click <laughs> on what we're saying and like reveal us as just someone who uh trust people so i've started a practice um this isn't the thing i'm getting to but like just one funny thing is i've started practice of just admitting to it and just saying like oh well i trust this yeah. person and they say this um like i trust bill mckibben's take on global warming i haven't like trusted you know i haven't ha I found evidence yet to trust heritage's <laughs> take on global warming or the oil institute's take so i'm going to trust bill mckibben and you could read this book by bill mckibben to have all the arguments i could like you know, research for a minute and give you the cliff notes right now, but like I would just be doing kabuki yeah. like trust politics. So, um, uh, and but here's what I'd recommend to people that's like just a little goofy thing. The serious thing is when you do look into something, it's easier than you think to become an expert in a corner mm -hmm. of politics. And when you do kind of rigorously look into something and like develop that expertise, you, yeah. you have it's a superpower because like. I just was like, okay, I'm going to take a year. I'm bored at law school anyway. Like, let me just take a year and just have one extracurricular, like have an, an extra extracurricular called researching all of the claims of why corporate law isn't that bad. And then I just like read the four books. It was literally not that, <laughs> that big a thing. It was like, there were four books written on Harvard Law. I like went to the library. I go, what books are written on the history of Harvard Law? I read the four books. I pulled all the like scholarly articles written on like public interest. I had some like research questions and I probably ended up reading reading like, you know, in terms of adding the articles together in books, probably like five or six books worth of things. And then I just kind of like systematically organized them and wrote it down. Um, and that was like one year of work, kind of like a few hours a week. Um, like everyone can read, you know, if you're the type that like, like listening to these heady podcasts, you probably like can read six books and, um, and like become an expert on something. Once you do, you're yeah. not afraid anymore. Like I would just go up to the dean of Harvard Law School and I would just say like, and it wasn't because I'm that brave. It was just like I was armed with something I knew what I was talking about with. And I was just like, oh, you're doing this totally wrong. Like you don't know the truth about this. You got to see these graphs. Look at the graph. Here's this. And he goes, well, what about this? And I go, well, actually, it's not that. It's this. And then like I just became so um, like I had an extra energy. Like I had an extra energy boost and an extra courage and bravery that stemmed from that knowledge. So I would recommend the listeners out there. Um, find a corner of politics and just like as an extracurricular activity in your life, develop a little bit more of an expertise in it. And it, and just having one of those will change the way you see the whole world because you're going to start seeing that all these people that pretend to know what they're talking about uh, might not know as much as they do. Um, and on that specific one, you can make some progress, but it'll also change your mindset about every issue. That's, that's great and really helpful. Um, I, I like to write because that's how I figure out what I think about something. And there will be all these claims that I kind of just take as given um, and may even use in arguments in, in, in interpersonal like conversations. And then when I go out to write it, I Google it and then it's like, 
actually, this is like a common misconception. <laughs> and I, I'm like, oh, wow, I can't actually cite that. I have to like make a different argument now. Um, and then oftentimes, like you'll find some like really good source, read it, and then you'll have like a much deeper understanding of whatever point you were trying to make. Um, and I, I actually don't really read the news or follow the news too much anymore. I read a lot more like long form analysis. Uh, current affairs is great for this. And it's sort of like a superpower in in that like everybody's you know following whatever Trump did next. And I did that for a while. And then I realized that like, it's one of these things might matter, but it's not really clear which one um, of like the many scandals that he's involved in. Um, and getting really like expert on it, it's just going to f- cloud your mind with like all this meaningless <laughs> evidence <laughs> and it's just like, all right, hey, my, <laughs> my model for who Trump is in my mind is not updated at all. And I've just wasted a few hours like learning about this. Um, but then reading about like some completely different topic that is really important and, and affecting people's lives, but no one else is reading on it. You can like bring this really interesting thing to the table. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's two types of news that is worthwhile. So one is kind of, yeah, like you were saying, which is kind of reading direct news about Mm -hmm. like a specific issue and like that isn't like the hot thing in the news cycle and kind of learning things around that the other one is what um nader does which is he just reads the new york times the washington post the wall street journal straight through like every morning or he lets them pile up and reads them on the weekends and you know he doesn't read every word in them but like he like the stuff that's happening in A24 of the New York Times yeah. is probably like deeply revealing about the structure of society. Um, and there's just like deeply interesting things there. And that's how you kind of have a re- like that's where reality is. And like these newspapers have not given in to the like Twitter mobs of like what the kind of like fizzy mm-hmm. news story is. Like you start reading like like here's a great example. Like Blackstone is is buying up like hundreds of thousands of houses. Like that's never going to be mm. the number one news story, but like, like one giant fund in New York, like starting a trend of turning everyone in America from owners into renters because of the foreclosure crisis. That's like an amazingly important thing in the structure of the economy and in the like structure of democracy and society. Like, and that's going to be on a 24 of the New York yeah. times on one day. And that's so much more important yeah, than like right. Covfefe. And so, um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't give up on my, my two cents would be don't give up on reading the news. Just read, um, read news that is still structured in a way to be about like a broad range of things and not like the monocultural yeah, news yeah. of Twitter. Yeah, something. I think there's actually a lot of value in reading about yeah. topics that you don't know anything about because, you know, like I said, my model for who Trump is – um, or who like Chuck Schumer is, is probably not going to change very much with each additional piece of information. Um, whereas like my model for, you know, Blackstone's position in the housing market is like pretty ill-formed. Um, like I have some priors, but uh, beyond that, I, I don't have much um, information to update my model with. So sorry to put it into like weird statistics terms, but that's, that's kind of like... No, no, I love this. This is... No, this is that Ezra Klein uses a cast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Leave, like Bayesian, Bayesian um, priors. Ezra, Ezra Klein, yeah, Ezra Klein uses this too. I guess it's like from less wrong or something, or is it? It's like, yeah. oh, I'm going to update my priors. I have this model. I think it's, I, you know, I, I, I think there's like a whole article to be written on babies and bathwaters because it's like, 
that is a useful, you know, like people might throw away the the types of people who do yeah. who do this, like come with all this other stuff. But like that's a very interesting development yeah. in ways of thinking. And um and like there's no reason to to dismiss it just because it's um comes with other things that that folks on the left might not be into. And so I'm interested in Totally. In, and and, in and for the like listener that. who doesn't know what we're um, talking about, uh Bayesian probability is like using you know, your prior beliefs about the world and then updating it based on the strength of the evidence and how surprised you would be if that evidence were true. And it's like an actual mathematical model, but you know, an approximation of it can be really useful in thinking through problems uh, when you don't know how much to trust information. And I think it's commonly associated with like the rationality community, um, which is also adjacent to the effective altruism community. And I think lefties might hear that and then pattern match to use another term and say like, oh, you're like one of those like libertarian weirdos from the internet um, who like doesn't really get politics, even though it is like a really powerful tool for understanding the world. Yeah, like I just, you know, my, I, I love that pattern match. I hadn't heard that before, but I really, I, I believe in this kind of model of, um, of kind of civic action that I call civic creativity, which is mixing and matching institutional forms to achieve like a vision. And it's, uh, it's from mm -hmm. this guy, Roberto Unger, who's like my favorite philosopher. Um, and he says like, your vision can be very strong. It can be like your North star, but your first steps in the direction of that vision is a lot like jazz. It's improvisational. And like, we need to use as many means as we can within like the ethics of using means, um, but uh, to get there. And we as like the left should not limit ourselves by saying like means such as being an entrepreneur or means such as using data, big data or means such as using this type of tech or using this way of talking. Like we should be agnostic until we've decided on that particular thing. Do we like it or not like it? Because who knows how it could be useful um, in getting where we want to get yeah. to. Um, uh, we need to play all the keys on the piano if we want to um, kind of sing the song. I, I like that. <laughs> um, um, yeah. And, and so uh, our bicentennial crisis was great. Um, but then you also are great at doing this thing called the current affairs podcast, um, which is my first exposure to the many, many talents of Pete Davis. So how did you first get involved in that? And like, what's your vision for that project? Yeah, so I, got, I first got involved because I knew Brianna Renix, who was recruited by Nathan. Uh, she's the senior editor. She writes these beautiful pieces on on immigration. She's also like one of the most hardcore people I know. She works at the border in Dilly, Texas, um, uh, doing asylum cases, um, and is like very committed to that. And I think like there are few people who deeply practice what they preach, and she is one of them. Um, and I, she had kind of, we were friends and she had told me about this kind of wild magazine that she was getting involved with and started seeing it more and more. And I said, oh, it's time for them to have a podcast. And she said, oh, I'll, I'll Nathan being the Nathan. editor and founder. I got started with yeah. uh, Nathan J. Robinson being the editor of, um, of Current Affairs. And so I got started in that. And um, I have a few visions on what it should be. So I have uh, a theory <laughs> of podcasts which are like um i think that podcasts are a supposed to be like a community building thing they're not necessarily an information 
they're not mm. just an informational thing. Like the spirit of a podcast is you're entering a room and hanging out with your friends, like this type mm -hmm. of podcast, not like serial, which is like more yeah. like a narrative story. And the spirit of it is like, it's like the Today Show. Yeah. They call this parasocial interaction where you like become friends with Rachel Maddow, like <laughs> my family does. Um, and, um, and I actually think Rachel Maddow leans into it because she sometimes like starts her show by revealing some like technical aspect of her show. Like she calls, she's like, this mm. is called the A block. And like my producer, Randy said, like, we have nothing for the C block. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. And it like opens up the curtain to the viewer to make them feel like they're like part yeah. of the production of Rachel Maddow in addition to like watching Rachel Maddow. And so you don't want to be evil with this and like manipulate people. But like, I think lightheartedly you should have a spirit of community with that. And so my goal is to have this be a nice room on the left that people come in and out of and that has familiar faces that people feel comfortable with. And that is a pleasant thing because the more that we amp up the pleasantness and the more we amp up the familiarity and the more we amp up the trust, the more we can yeah. feed the broccoli. Because like if, if you just get a kick out of all of us, we can talk about, you know, drone, drone casualties and what's going on at the border. And if we mix that in with like a lot of other good stuff and, um, um, more pleasant stuff. And so, um, and uh, so that's like the informational goal of like get good content through there that, feeds the community um, but then the community goal in and of itself is we want people to feel like they're not alone and we want people to feel like there's other people out there and there's things to do and uh the world is is big and exciting and and you should get involved in it and and join the join yeah. get on the train you know um and uh that's um that's the um that's the that's the second thing the third thing is i want to i deviously want to have it be a venue for intra-left mm. debates um, and be a place where you can work out some of the grapplings on the left. I think that there are secret, the more that the left is successful, the more the fault lines will show up. And yeah. I'm like obsessed with the fault lines. Um, like one of my dreams for the podcast next year is to do like a tour of all the fault lines. So like MMT ah. versus Matt Brunig, you know, uh, antitrust versus uh, social welfare. You know, um, uh, worker cooperatives versus uh, unions versus why not just do basic mm -hmm. income, you know, stuff like this. Um, and uh, I just think we need to work these out because we need to work them out before we have the power to implement them because we can't get it yeah. wrong. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's that's um, super interesting. There's there's a lot there as well. Um I'm just thinking of like how funny it is to talk about parasocial relationships when like, you know, I've listened to you for close to what six months now, I think. And it's funny to like actually get to have the conversation. Um, and Current Affairs was like very welcoming in a way that other publications just like don't feel like Nathan calls his readers, his friend or his friends, and you get the feeling that he really means it. Um, and it's, it's cool because I found that like, as I've gotten more into left-wing politics, it's been really accessible. Um, you know, this is like, they're people who are celebrities to me because I follow them on Twitter and read their writing and, and listen to their voices on my commute. But they're also like, you know, we're a pretty fringe movement still, as famous as AOC might get. Um, and so for anybody out there who's like interested in, in, in this world and like follow somebody, like reach out to them, find their email, um, brought them a note and you know you might actually get a really cool conversation out of it um and i think like that's that's really special
Yeah, and and I hope we can live up to that. You know, I I believe in this practice that I call the democratic faith, which is that um, you shouldn't just fight to deepen democracy. You should practice it in your own life. And the goal is to like be open to people, you know, and um, there are one of the, we talked on a recent episode about how Noam Chomsky, you know, despite being kind of the Einstein of linguistics and like this kind of world, uh, world thinker, you know, he ans- he tries to answer most emails um, he tries to, you know, he, if the president invited him to talk and the local kind of activists, veterans for peace that has three people in a small town in Western Mass wants him to talk, he's going to treat them both um, with the same level of respect. And um, and uh, I think that's um, that's something we should all live up to. And, and I I think it's it's fair to hold uh, lefties Absolutely. to that quality. I really. I really, um, I kind of, uh, to say it in a negative phrase, I really don't like it when people who um, might be aligned ideologically don't practice that interpersonal. Absolutely. I I mean, you are the first example of the ideas that you preach. And if you don't live up to them in your personal life, why would anybody listen to you? Yeah, it's a down, it's a down payment on your vision. Yeah. Your own, your own. Um, yeah, practice. within effective altruism, there's some discussion around like reputation and how important it is. Um, the idea being like, you can make a utilitarian argument for lying to people sometimes to get them to do things that would be ultimately good. Um, so like, getting them to donate more to charity or um, to stop eating meat, but it's like really hard to see how it would shake out well in the long run because your credibility just gets shot if you. Um, lie to people like beyond like any kind of like intrinsic argument against lying even from a utilitarian or consequentialist standpoint it's just really hard to make it work um and being credible to everyone around you is just like this lifelong project that requires persistence and um honesty throughout um so i i know we're closing in on time so i want to talk about your your primary project, it seems, which is the democratic alternative. And I'm actually intrigued because there's not a lot online about this, but. Uh, yeah, we, we are launching in the summer publicly. So, but I can talk about it. Do you have any, what, do you want me to jump in on it? Or well, you, I know um, question about it? you're a little bit famous now because of a speech you gave at Harvard, um, telling people to stop keeping their options open and picking a damn door um, to walk through and like, commit your life project to. And this seems to be the life project that you're talking about. So I'd love to just hear what the vision is and and what steps you're taking to get there. Yeah. So, yeah. So here's the idea. So I, I have two sides to talk about it. One is like very um, practical and one's kind of fluffy. So I'll start with practical, which is that um, the, we on the left, we have all these ideals, but ideals need to be realized in practical ideas. There needs to be policy alternatives that embody the visions that we have. So if we believe in more worker power, if we believe in decarbonizing the economy, if we believe in racial justice and economic justice and deepening democracy, we need to have like the the forms that these take are real institutional reform projects and public policy. And so the goal is to be a, um, is to be a, a repository for uh, 
democratic ideas and public policy that can then be used to uh, by politicians to enact and make real our project. So um, uh, even more concrete way to say it is there are all these democratic ideas out there in the world. And then there's all these politicians that are looking for things to pass and candidates looking for things to fight for and journalists looking for things to write about. But we need something that connects mm-hmm. the ideas to the people. And so what we do with the, what our goal is with the democratic alternative is to be a policy infrastructure that raises up democratic ideas that connects ideas from think tanks and academics and precedents that have already been tried or international or historic precedents, pack, gather them up, package them, organize them into a full platform, and then hustle that platform piece by piece to politicians, journalists, and the public at large. So you, um, another way to put it is we mm-hmm. want to be the ALEC of the left. ALEC is this right-wing group that does this for right-wing ideas at the state level. We want to do that as a like radical democratic group doing that for policy ideas kind of with the center of gravity. And Alex has been super successful, right? Like passing state level legislation. Totally effective. Anytime you hear a news story that's like 17 states passed (laughs) some awful bill, it's because Alec put the bat call out, packaged the bill, gave them all their talking points, gave Mm -hmm. them all their language and sent it out. And, um, you know, these, you can see the effect of this piecemeal in like stuff like Matt Brunig. Like Matt Brunig has shown that there's, you know, Matt Brunig's one dude, like a brilliant dude, wonderful. I think, like, I think he's been one of the kind of uh, figures in the pantheon of the 2010s <laughs> left. Um, uh, but part of the his success yeah. is the vacuum, you know, just like no one was coming up with ideas that were left of cap, and, and, and- you know, and, um, and like really packaging them and really rigorously thinking about them and really like doing them. The Green New Deal is another example, you know. Green New Deal has less of the like policy flesh out yet, but it has the packaging. It's like we need you can't just have a bunch of boring ideas. You need to wrap them, bundle them up and you need to name them. And that name needs to be cool. <laughs> and, um, so uh, I have an example. of No, this, no, this, I, I this is great. I, I was just going to um, de-jargon a little bit. So so Matt Brunig founded the People's Policy Project, which is really the first like left wing think tank, at least in modern American history. And then CAP is a center for American progress. Is that correct? Yeah, Center for American Progress, which is kind of a left really. center, but not uh, yeah, not fully radical. But like giving money to uh, the yeah, American Enterprise Institute, and yeah, not not great. Um, so, yeah. so I'd love to hear an example of or. Um, or- it, so here's an example of one of the projects, like that. I I that would be an example of something, and I'll do one we've done and one I want to do. So mm-hmm. public banks, for example. Um, there's in North Dakota, there's one state that has a public bank. It's North Dakota. What that what states usually do is they invest their pension funds in Wall Street and Wall Street charges them heavy fees. And then when a state wants to do a uh, th- that's their employee pension funds, like mm-hmm. the policemen of the state or I, I, I guess policemen wouldn't be state employees. But t- well, teachers are a common pension. And then what t- teachers or something. Yeah. And then. Um, uh, when they want to do an infrastructure project, they ask Wall Street for a bond. So two times they're going to mm. Wall Street and getting bilked. Um, what the public bank does is they invest their pension in their own bank owned by the state. And then when they want to do infrastructure projects, they get a really good deal from themselves. And then that state bank can also do a few other things. So 
this is a very promising idea. On a practical level, it just saves a lot of money. Republicans like it. Democrats like it. It kind of has this populist keep your money at home idea. On a vision level, you know, having a public bank that serves public purposes could just be a foundational institution that could start with this cool, like invest the pension funds and then use it on infrastructure projects, but could expand to how can we democratize entrepreneurship? How can we fund the Green New Deal? How can we do other, how could we have postal banking and, you know, expand access to consumer finance? A lot of interesting things. So what we did is we packaged that idea up. We brought it to West Virginia. Um, we put it on in like this thing we call a starter pack on called the pub the democratic alternatives public bank starter pack we had a guy in west virginia we said hustle it to west virginia um he wrote an op-ed in the charleston gazette about public banks he sent the op-ed to a bunch of state legislators it got its way up to the head of the dems in west virginia the treasurer and now it's a priority of the west virginia dems all because we just took a precedent packaged it up you know, designed it up, sent it to someone, kind of did a basic playbook on like how to kind of get it in the idea space in a state that was more accessible. And now it's a priority of the state Democratic Party. So that's the power of connecting ideas, precedents, um, projects to politicians, journalists, and the public at large. And so we want to just lather that's and super repeat cool. across um, every issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I find in conversations with like smart people who are committed to like helping others often in the effective altruism community and they'll like kind of be like against socialism but as soon as i start talking about specific policies single payer healthcare um you know maybe a basic income uh legalizing drugs like they're usually on board with those ideas and the american public is also like pretty pro a lot of ideas that would kind of be part of like a left-wing project but they don't like the label and so I noticed like the democratic alternative, it's like small D democratic, right? Like people are in favor of democracy. Um, And so I think this is just like brilliant because if you build institutions that are, you know, the type of world that you want to see and they work, I think that's like the best way of persuading people of like that the left is an actually good thing. A a precedent Mm, is worth a thousand opinions. Um, and um, here's the basic theory of what you're saying, which is um, there is a common misconception. This is I, I really well, believe I, I think this I know where you're going with a this. lot of my thought, which is that um, abstract is where we come together. And concrete Mm. is where we disagree. So you hear politicians saying things like, we all believe in our values. We all believe in freedom and dignity and whatever. We just disagree Mm. on how they're realized. And I think we've got that totally wrong. We all disagree on the abstract stuff. We disagree on, do you like this like mythical character Bernie or mythical character Hillary when like they all are Rorschach tests that mean different things to different people. Do you all agree on like calling yourself a socialist or not? Like we all disagree. We all disagree. But suddenly when you get really concrete and you start saying like, okay, whatever you want to call it, should we have less, you know, should we be fixing prisons? Like whatever you want to call it, should we have this other way of doing this thing or whatever you want to call it? Have you seen what they were able to do with homelessness in Utah? Suddenly we start agreeing. And um, the best way to, to recruit people to an ideology, I think, is, is to recruit them. You can recruit a bunch of people through the concrete. 
like, oh, there's this institution and there's this institution, there's this policy and there's this project and there's this idea. And they all seem to be pretty good. I'd like to have what they're having. Where are they coming from? And then you start saying, oh, well, all of these originated on the left. <laughs> and then they say, oh, I'd like to learn more about the left. The libertarians are very good at this. Like they, they often say, like, do you like drug legalization? Do you like not like red tape? And then like people come in through that concrete stuff and then they start saying like, oh, what is this? It's the libertarians. And so we got to do that with um, with uh, radical democracy. Um, and meanwhile, even if you don't convince people of the abstract, you might win over like ad hoc coalitions on like piece by piece issues and we'll win anyway. Like that's the way we should do bipartisanship. We shouldn't do bipartisanship by compromising our morals. We shouldn't do it by saying we don't believe in anything. We should find the overlap between strong ideologies, which every ideology has overlap, um, and work together on the overlapped concrete issues. And that's the type of bipartisanship we should have, not like this nothingness bipartisanship of like a center that doesn't exist. Um, so um, that's my kind Interesting. of Interesting. I like that. I, I thought you were going for, is it Ro Roberto Unger saying like, we, ho we expect hope to be the cause of action? Oh, well, I love that too. Yeah, I say that way too much. Um, we expect hope to be the cause of action, but actually action is the cause of hope. And I think that's that can be tied to this too, which is, um, uh, you know, when you start working on concrete projects, you um, you get really excited about the, you get, yeah. you get yeah, more absolutely. and more excited. I, I think uh, an example of that for me was in Brooklyn, there was this federal jail that like lost power and heat for weeks during the coldest part of the year. And it was actually accessible, unlike many jails and prisons in the country. Um, and so people showed up and, and protested outside and I, I joined them. And um, it was just really inspiring because I've been to protests in the past where it's like not super clear what the mechanism of change is um, and who you're really trying to reach. But in this situation, like the people controlling the situation are right next to you. And, you know, the people you're trying to help are inside and they are responding to you and, and pounding on the windows. And I just came away from that. Like, I mean, it's a horrifying situation. Um, and the fact that it happened in the first place is a, a travesty. Um, but I also came away inspired that like, sometimes, you know, you actually can make change very quickly by, by showing up and, and shining a light on one of the myriad injustices that is currently being perpetuated. Um, people doing the work are always more hopeful than people sitting on the sidelines. And you'd think it's the opposite because um, you'd think they know the truth, but they do know the truth. They know, they, they, they know that it's worse than it looks, but they also see all yeah. the, uh, yeah. I, I, used to, I used to be uh, very optimistic yeah. about the state of the world and, and was sympathetic to like the Steven Pinker kind of thesis. Um, and then I learned more about how the world is and the, the horrors of, factory farming and I was always like interested in the criminal justice system and, and seeing how that plays out. Um, but then like American foreign policy overseas and like it was very easy to come away from like, wow, like this is just a hell world. Um, and I now still believe that like the world is getting better, but like it's getting better because people are fighting for it and people have fought for it in the past and succeeded and looking to those examples and, and how it actually worked is is inspiring. But, you know, it's not just because somebody wrote a good book. It's because people went out and got involved and, and became activists and committed their lives to something. And in your words, they picked a damn hallway. <laughs> when we fight, we win. Pete, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Garrison. It's been wonderful being on. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. 
If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.